Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is Dr. Heidi Hastings, joining us from um, north of Dallas, Frisco, Texas. Um, Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Hastings. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here with you. Um, We started to record this podcast um, yesterday, listeners, and um, we had some technical difficulties, and so we're starting over. You won't be aware of that, but one of the things I became aware of is listening to Dr. Hastings for 30 minutes is um, this is a really, really important podcast um, in a space we've never really gone before, and um, our joint prayers that'll helpful for you and Without getting into the details, let me first give an introduction of Dr. Hastings, and I'll read an introduction, then I'll get a little little overview of what she's going to talk about, and she may give some framing also before she gets into the content. Um, Let me read an introduction. Um, Dr. Heidi Hastings is a sex and marriage um, researcher, educator, and relationship coach who also teaches family stress and coping for BYU-Idaho Online. Heidi has a master's and a PhD and PhD degrees in human development and family studies from Texas Women's University and a bachelor's degree in communications from BYU. Her research interest includes betrayal trauma, healthy sexuality, sexual mindfulness, pornography and religion, and transformational growth. She is working on a book for religious women who have experienced betrayal based primarily on her research, but also influenced by her own experiences with betrayal in her first marriage. Heidi is deeply in love with her husband, Scott. They are co-founders of Family Medicine Plus in Frisco, Texas. Together, they served as directors of the self-reliance in their state for six and a half years, and, and as part of that, created a 10-week growth marriage self-reliance course. They are passionate about teaching couples how to create great marriages and working together on a book about masculine intimacy. They have four amazing and unique children who have deeply challenged and analyzed who they are. She believes strongly that Jesus Christ is the greatest advocate for women. She is passionate about empowering women, especially her own daughters, refugees in the Dallas area, and most recently, African women. I became aware of Dr. Hastings from earlier podcast guests, um, Aaron and Julie Banowski, which were on episode 647, I believe, in your same stake, or at least in your area. Yeah. Even my same ward. In the, the same, same ward. ward. So, <laughs> yeah, great um, people. And as I listened to Dr. Hastings and the podcast you're not going to hear, I just recognized that her expertise on betrayal trauma, validating those of you that are walking this road, um, survivors of betrayal trauma. Um, She has framed this up in the most helpful way possible I've ever heard to validate how you might feel. And you, I think my prayer is that you won't feel alone um, in your journey because of the research that Dr. Hastings done, her own experience. And and then um, she will talk a little bit about how to heal and find a hope and peace. The overview of this podcast, and I'm, before I turn over, is Dr. Hastings going to, in her first section, going to talk about how she got into this research. And following the example of prior podcast guests that are sometimes very vulnerable, she's willing to be kind of vulnerable and share some of her story. Respect for you for doing that. Then she's going to talk about her research. 
And one of the things in the second section of her research that she's going to introduce is the stages of betrayal and self-development. And these are five stages um, that are powerful and really helpful. That's the heart of the podcast, I believe, is going to be this um, this model she's framed up. And then um, the third part of the podcast will be important takeaways. Um, the things we'll put in the show notes, um, you can email um, Dr. Hastings. Her email, and we'll put this in the show notes, is Heidi H-E-I-D-I, Hastings at gmail.com. We'll also put a link to her, um, a talk she gave in Stake Women's Conference, um, shorter probably version of this, but it might be helpful for you to listen to that. She's also going to talk in the podcast about a book she's writing, and we will put um, a link if you're wanting to feel impressed to share your story anonymously as part of the new book, and we will put a, put a link to a Google Doc. Um, and she will also reference some articles, and we're not going to put in the articles the show notes, but you can doc, email Dr. Hastings for a copy of those articles. So I think that's good enough framing um, in five minutes. And we pray that the podcast works this time. We don't have to do another do-over. Um, that's and I'll, right. And I'll turn it over to you, Dr. Hastings. Thank you so much. First of all, just thank you, Richard, for all that you're doing to reduce shame. Topics that seem to, to be involved with feelings of shame within religious culture. And I love... Um, that you're doing that. And and in doing so, I knew, I've heard you talk to a lot of other guests. How did you get into this? And and my sense was to really do it from a very formal um, perspective. And then I thought, no, if, if I want to reduce shame as well, then I need to be a little bit vulnerable as well. So uh, because your audience is drawn so deeply to stories of vulnerability, I'll give you more background on this than I give uh, than I would normally share. So it, it, the story may start long before this, but um, I'll just pick up with, for several years, I taught seminary and institute in Arizona, Young Adult Institute. And by far the most popular course was uh, on marriage and family. And I think I just gave a different perspective than they'd heard before because I had been divorced. And I was able to... Um, look at family and the importance of marriage and the importance of family in a way that became so deep to my soul and became a big defender of the family. In fact, I started a binder that said in big letters on the front, defender of the family and had, I, I was just very, very passionate about, about that. Um, and I remember just telling, having a conversation with God one day saying, I, I've got the passion. I think I can do this, but I really don't know academically or statistically things that I need to do to be able to speak about this openly. And, and he heard that prayer and it, this is, you know, 10, 15 years later that it's coming around to fruition. But, um, at, at the time I was teaching seminary and institute, I was also in the state relief society presidency at that time. And I, I share that not for any other reason than just to um, illuminate my own naive beliefs at that time that leaders in the church have it all together and their families have it all together. And, and that was pretty naive. Um, and God knew my weaknesses and he knew some areas that I needed to change and, and probably 
my whole family, but uh, things seem to be going very well in many different areas of life. And uh, my husband and I received revelation in the temple one day that we were to leave everything we had in Arizona and move to Texas. And my sense was that then everything would fall into place. I'd heard people talk about similar impressions and their household and their business, all the things. And, and God did not make it easy for us. In fact, it was highly, highly distressing and difficult, but we chose to be obedient to that. Um, and uh, it, it ended in a lot of distress in a lot of areas that I'll I'll talk about in a minute, but uh, when we got to Texas within a year or two, I was again called to serve in Stake Relief Society here. And people from the outside likely thought we looked like we were this model family. In reality, we were, we were really quickly falling apart. Within our individual family system, members of our family, individual members of the family, and then by extension, all of us, because the family is a system and what happens to one impacts all the other members of the family. Uh, we were reeling with individuals dealing with mental illness and suicidality, sexual assault and worse, addictions in lots of different forms, disabilities, LGBTQ discoveries, faith crises and transitions, and with some really unfortunate events near financial ruin. Because of the choices of some of my family members, I was really struggling and couldn't wrap my head around how agency and charity could coexist. I could hardly stand the weight of it all. It really negatively impacted my health. And my stake president was inspired to release me as Stake Relief Society president, which was devastating at the time because I felt like it was a failure. However, pretty soon afterward, I felt a strong prompting to start graduate school and study families. This brought me full circle back around to my day's teaching institute, where I was a, a firm, staunch defender of the family. Although this time I did it a little from a different perspective. I, I believe in hindsight that God saw the rigidity of my faith and the rigidity, rigidity of my parenting. And he knew that he needed to intervene and teach me to see, think, see things a little bit differently. And so with this combination of experiential learning, spiritual learning and informational learning that followed the next five years, it was just exactly what I needed. Since that time, I really learned to trust God and know that while he doesn't inflict pain on us and he doesn't inflict suffering on us, he does repurpose it for our good. And by the way, I'm happy to report that our family is in a much better place five years later. And I've learned much about both agency and charity and the importance of their coexistence. So at the end of my master's degree, I proposed to my thesis committee that I wanted to study family resilience. They said, and, and this is in a formal meeting, <laughs> I proposed it and they said, that topic's too broad. You've got one week to come back with a more focused topic and at least 20 academic articles that will help support your new topic. 
And so during that next week, I prayed, I fasted, and I changed my topic probably 30 times. 30 minutes before my meeting with the chair, I still had nothing. I didn't know what I was going to report to her. I was so stressed out. And then I took a moment and checked my email. And I just so happened to be following a family research organization that this email was talking about research on financial infidelity. Miraculously, the article in the email had 20 references to all types of infidelity. So it was a miracle. I presented my new topic to my chair um, as sexual, emotional, digital, and financial infidelity. And she accepted that. So I, for the next several months, researched those topics, read hundreds of articles, and I hated every moment of it. <laughs> it brought up a lot of baggage from my first marriage. And I thought, I am never touching this topic again. About that same time, I was accepted into a PhD program. And I told my husband I was definitely going to study some kind of positive psychology topic for my, for my doctoral program. And in hindsight, I think God must have chuckled a little bit at that and <laughs> just kind of went, hmm, we'll see. <laughs> so in my very first semester in a research class, the professor assigned me to research something at the intersection of religion and media. And I thought, hey, I, I already have some studies on that. I can use this to go back to my master's degree, grab those references to make it easier if I do it on the topic of pornography. And it was so painful. And I said, I'm never doing that again. And the next semester in stats, same thing happened. You got to have 20 references. You got to do this. Oh, it's going to make it easier if I do it on pornography. Again, I hated every minute of it. But something in me started to change. And little by little, the more I learned, the more I started to feel more compassion for those who felt trapped by unwanted pornography use, and especially religious men. There's a whole body of research out there on, that shows the impact of pornography is most negative for religious men. And then I read this study saying those men who view pornography, it's most negative if they have highly religious wives, the worst outcomes for them. That really kind of ticked me off and I couldn't help but wonder why all we ever hear about is the men who are having all these negative experiences. What's going on in the home? What about their wives? I couldn't find anything in academic literature about religious women who were wives of and with problematic pornography use or compulsive pornography use. So the next semester I had a grant writing class and I wrote a little grant to see if I could get some money to do a study to answer this question. Here's a gap in the literature. That little grant and two years of interviewing many women, researching, analyzing, and writing have led to a couple of different published articles and a dissertation on religious women and how their husband's problematic pornography use has impacted her sexuality, her religiosity, and her identity, as well as, um, like Richard, you pointed out, I identified a model that explains the process of the women's experience with this phenomenon. My research doesn't 
intend to negate the very real experience of men, but uh, I used a, a theory, feminist hermeneutics, which traditionally looks at scripture, which most often is written by men, and it says, okay, so what's the women's perspective in this scripture story? And uh, they do the same with art, both both um, sacred text and art, and they look at it from a women's perspective. So my attempt was to retell the story from a woman's perspective, specifically a religious woman's perspective. And the truth is that many religious and a, a significant body of non-religious women experience it as betrayal. And for some, that results in also trauma responses. Keep sharing. We're just thanks on behalf of our listeners for being vulnerable with your own story. And you had a few golden nuggets for me, and I want to keep you talking. But I like this concept that God doesn't inflict pain, but he, he, we can repurpose it for a good. That's a whole podcast in that whole mm-hmm. statement. Um, yeah. Really powerful inside. And I love your t- um, feelings about shame and um, just some of the things you're sharing. So. And I love you being honest with kind of your original faith that was good, but it was a little more rigid and a little more, and I think as we mature as Latter-day Saints, often our, our commitment to the church doesn't change, but our model of faith changes in a way that's more sustainable and maybe a right. way that allows us to better minister to others. So I'm not saying one's better than the other, but I just recognize with both of us, we've kind of gone th- through a faith transition into a stage that's a... I would call it less brittle and just more sustainable um, because of our and lived that was, experiences. That was actually part of my research as well. And I, I wasn't planning on talking about that today. That's maybe for another day. But um, there, there are stages of faith. And it often requires, um, James Fowler uh, is the first one to coin that term that I know of. And He has some excellent research on that, but as we progress, and it's quite often through adversity uh, that our faith is able to develop to much deeper levels, and and with each level, we we learn how to better use our agency. Well said. Keep sharing. It's all part of development. All right, so I'll tell you a little bit about my research now, if that's okay. So I recruited, I used, uh, I I made contact with therapists all over the United States and recruited women specifically in two different areas. They had to um, identify as being religious and they had to identify as um, being married to or currently or previously to a man that they felt had a problematic relationship with pornography. Now, a lot of studies will, you have to meet certain measurements to qualify for a certain area. This is qualitative research, and that's a little bit different than quantitative. And all I required is that the women themselves felt like the relationship that their husband or previous husband, former husband had with pornography was problematic. So my sample of women, they were ages from their 20s to their 70s. They were mostly Christian. I had fundamentalist Christians, Protestants, 
LDS women, non-denominational women, Catholics, Muslims, Jews, and there were a small number that were once part of organized religion, but left religion and considered them, themselves spiritual. The participants were geographically from every, every region in the U.S., as well as one from Mexico, one from Canada, and one from Australia. And most of the women... Uh, before, well, most of the women before their discovery of the pornography use were completely unaware that their husbands were viewing pornography. Some of them had known that he had viewed it a long time ago and thought the problem was over. Um, and largely, the majority of the husbands in this case were keeping their their um, sexual behaviors very secretive, and they were quite often lying and gaslighting to cover it up. There were, though, a few women that had no problem with their husbands viewing pornography uh, about the time of their marriage or a little before their marriage. They um, there were were a number of them that had even used pornography themselves. But or with their husband, but over time that changed as their circumstances changed. So, um, with that, should we start into the stages of betrayal and self development? Yes. Okay, great. So, I identified five different stages, and I'll tell just a little bit about that, a little bit about the model, and then we'll go with more specifics into each of those. The first stage is innocence. The second stage is crisis. The third stage is aftermath. The fourth stage is healing. And the fifth stage is transformation. So obviously for religious women, this experience is going to be a little bit different than for non-religious women because of um, their religious beliefs surrounding sexuality, surrounding pornography, surrounding fidelity, and, and the sacredness often of marriage. Um, and a lot of times those beliefs were developed in their family of origin or in their religion. And so one of the big elements that I identified in the model is the, the concept of time. So the ideas and the beliefs that they, they, uh, evolved into early on then carried with them across time into later stages and really influenced them. Um, the second part of time is that for some, it took days or months to move through the first couple of stages into later ones. And for some, it took years. For some, it even took decades. But no one gets to say how long it takes for a woman to heal. There are a lot of variables with that. And the influence of gender and their religion, their sexuality, and the, and the messages surrounding all of those and uh, really um, are impacted over time. The second thing I wanted to bring up about the model is that shame held women in crisis mode. I recently read some research about uh, the brain and how the brain functions. And there's some research that says when we're in a sh state of shame, we can't learn and we can't progress. So shame inhibits progression. Um, 
And the third thing is that as women progressed through the stages, most of them had multiple discoveries or as their husbands um, either drip disclosure where they'd tell just a little bit at a time. And every time a new piece of information would come out, it would kind of throw them earlier back in the stages or they had relapses um, or uh, other types of infidelity that or, or betrayal that really set the women back to those earlier stages. So first, let's talk about the first stage, which is innocence. So in this stage, uh, scripts really play a big role. And scripts in the academic world are like a script to a play. You read the script and you see how you're supposed to act. Well, um, there are cultural skills scripts, there are religious scripts, there are family scripts. If you're in this family, this is how we act. If you're in this religion, this is how we act. If you're a female, this is how you act. And so all of those impacted her identity, uh, which those innocent parts of our identities, identities are so beautiful in their core to who we are, to ourselves, our marriage, our sexuality. But when it's combined with uh, a spouse's pornography use, it actually can become somewhat dangerous. And I'll, I'll explain that in a little bit. But um, the women also tended to believe that the couple's identity created at marriage trumped her personal identity. And quite often that would go by the wayside. Um, later, because of what they'd been through, they the women called those initial beliefs naive, shallow, shameful, or even confusing. In these cases of the women that I interviewed, the women assumed that their husband's pornography use, um, when uh, they had known about it prior to marriage, wasn't a big deal because when they were married, they would be able to have all the sex they wanted and then their husband wouldn't need to look at pornography anymore. They they believed that they were a, a replacement for that. Um, and they really, truly grossly underestimated the how problematic pornography could become. So every woman that I interviewed had a different story. Everyone had a different belief system. Um, you know, the most conservative that grew up as a holy roller to, to a Jewish woman who was more liberal in her thinking. They were all different, but there are some common elements to, to all of these that help us identify what the process is. And those naive beliefs uh, almost exclusively led for the women to trust their husbands explicitly. And this allowed them to be emotionally, physically, and sexually vulnerable, uh, even though there was no reason in, to, to no proof that they should be, but they trusted that their husbands would be loyal and faithful to them. They just had this false sense of security. And based upon that trust, they then made some assumptions that he'd be trustworthy, that he'd be monogamous, exclusive, and that he would avoid pornography. That was a, an assumption that many of them made without ever really communicating about it. They didn't really have the language quite often to talk about sexuality or pornography. And so they just made assumptions about it. They also had assumptions about their sexuality 
that and their sex life with their husband, that it was going to be healthy, robust, exciting, and intimate, deeply intimate. They, the women really um, longed for that and believed that that's how it would be. And with these assumptions and beliefs and the trust that they had, they then relinquished power to him. And for some women, that was knowingly. Um, they had been told by religious leaders or by their parents, by mothers, that they should yield to their husbands and that they, um, especially there were a few that told their religious leaders, told them your husband's in charge of the sexuality in this relationship and you do whatever he tells you to do and you are to yield to him. Um, for other women, it was rather subconscious yield relinquishing of power where she wouldn't speak up about her opinion, about her needs, her preferences, her struggles. And so a number of women either chose to be silent or they were silenced by their husband, by uh, culture, by whatever it is out of fear, shame, or a desire to belong. So that leads us to the second uh, stage, which is the crisis stage. And that stage actually begins with many of the women just having this sense that something's off in their marriage. Several of them had a difficulty pinpointing, why am I feeling discomfort? Some wondered if maybe he was viewing pornography or had a relationship with another woman or something and asked questions about it. And they were uh, often lied to and or told no or... Um, just why would you think something like that? There, there were some crazy stories even of, of uh, efforts that men took to make the women believe that there was nothing to worry about. Um, for about a third of the women, their feeling that something was off came because there was, um, after the first year or two in marriage, a complete disappearance of intimacy in their marriage. And by that, I don't necessarily mean sexuality, but, but for many of them, they're, they had no more sex after that period of time, but also there wasn't even talking to each other, touching, um, sharing thoughts or ideas or experiences. So, um, many of the women at this stage of something's not right, started mourning the loss of their sexuality, the loss of closeness with their husband, and they describe it as feeling like they're just roommates. Um, and this was really troublesome for these women, and they questioned these their husband's confusing behaviors, and the only thing that many of them could come up with, what is going on, is they started blaming themselves. It must be me. I'm insufficient sexually, or the way I look, or... Um, whatever reason, and, and they felt completely rejected and worthless, many of them. Um, some even thought that they were going crazy, and there were men who lied and gaslighted to cover their sexual behaviors, like I indicated earlier. And um, women, because they couldn't figure out what was going on during this stage, a number of them relinquished sexual power to try to stabilize the relationship, for example, um, some of them submitted to sexual pressure uh, or boundary pushing by their husbands and submitted to sexual acts that they weren't comfortable with. Uh, for some, especially those in the more conservative, conservative faiths, um, 
this actually resulted in sexual abuse that because the women were just told submit to your husband sexually, they didn't even realize until later that they were being abused. And that was just a, maybe 10 or 15% of the women, but it is still something to, to pay attention to. Um, eventually, the women either discovered or had disclosed to them the problematic nature of their husband's pornography use. And for a good number, more than half of them, there were often accompanying other compulsive sexual behaviors. This day of their life became one of the most painful days. And a lot of them termed it D-Day, and they could still tell you, even sometimes years later, what day their D-Day is on. Each woman told a painful story, and nobody gets to dictate what woman, what a woman should feel like, if it's minimal, if it's something huge based upon what they um, discovered, whether it's just seeing a picture or whether it's finding out your husband's been with 250 prostitutes throughout your marriage. The, the woman at either end may have very, very similar responses. I hope this is okay with you, Richard. I, I wrote a little, maybe it could be called a poem, Good. but that kind of describes this period of time where they're um, in crisis. Shock confusion, unable to speak, zoned out, numb, time stands still, silence, collapse on the floor, shattered, hysteric crying, screaming, yelling, heart pounding, hyperventilating, irrational, nauseous, dizzy, denial, unable to sleep, eat, focus, stand or walk, immeasurable despair, anger, Humiliation, blaming self, guilt, angry with God, pleading with God. Is there a God? Anxious, worried, fearful, worthless, responsible, unsafe, depressed, hopeless. Work, work, work to cover the pain. Grief, rejected, withdrawn, isolated, invisible, lonely, filled with shame. Muscle tension, excruciating pain, weight gain, weight loss, chronic fatigue, ill, unloved, betrayed. So that tells just a little bit about some of the things that the women were experiencing in that stage. Interestingly, more than half of them, without me asking any questions on this, revealed when talking about the discovery that they'd had complex trauma, which means they'd had some kind of a traumatic experience in their past. For most of them, it was sexual abuse that they back then had learned, I can't trust this person. And then as they moved into the marriage, they're like, but I can trust this person. And then when they can't trust this person anymore, it not only brings up the trauma from this one experience, but a complex trauma based upon, um, you know, other traumas as well, which made it even more uh, severe. During this crisis period, the women imposed chaotic and reactive boundaries, such as you've got to leave now, we're separating, 
maybe even considering divorce at that point in time, becoming overly sexual, um, wanting to have sex nonstop with their husband, prohibiting sex, we're not having any sex at all, uh, or things like completely isolating themselves from family, friends, loved ones. Um, they assumed that it was his actions were because of her inadequacies or because um, the in, the isolation she may have isolated and, and not spoken because they belonged to a patriarchal religious community that perhaps he was paid for, uh, to be a pastor or something. And if she tells anybody, they will have no income from their family or her husband's in the military. And if you're an adulterer in the military, you get kicked out which that's fine for him, but then she loses all of her benefits. She loses all her, her retirement and her health insurance and everything. So because of these things and then her own shame, most women didn't speak about his sexual behaviors to anyone for, for, for quite some time. And with that, the shame grew. And uh, in a few cases, the silence allowed her to continue to be emotionally or physically or sexually abused. So um, this stage lasted from days to decades. And again, the longer they were in shame, the longer this stage lasted. So the next stage, aftermath, um, in those weeks following discovery, the women lost their grounding and they couldn't, they didn't know what to trust. Their world had turned upside down. And so they detached from their husbands and sometimes from God. They started to question, analyze, deconstruct, and explore lots of different possibilities about God, religion, their marriage themselves. And they felt very inadequate um, and again, blamed themselves. So they started to make efforts to control his pornography use or to fix it. For some that, for one woman that was, she kept charts and graphs to try to dictate when he was getting really grumpy or mean. That meant that he was about to relapse again. And so she'd throw herself on the altar, which is her bed, you know, um, and give herself up, even though it was painful for her. Um, some women began trying to get family members or religious leaders or counselors to help fix their husband. But a lot of times help was more harmful than it was helpful because in some cases, friends would say, it's only pornography. What is your issue? I don't get it. In other cases, there were religious leaders or family members who would say, well, if you'd have more sex with them, this wouldn't be happening. It's your fault that he's doing that. You're just not having enough sex with them or you're not being a good enough wife. Um, that was all really hard to hear. Uh, but they, they started having um, two types of coping during this period. One is religious coping like prayers and rituals. And the other is maladaptive copings, like substance use, dissociation, hyper-focused on their bodies. Uh, regardless, at this stage, the, kind of towards the end of this stage, they feel shattered, exhausted, and hopeless. And they start hitting what some of them turned as rock bottom. When they realized, I can't control this any longer. I can't control myself. I can't control my husband. And so they would... Um, surrender either to God or to an acceptance of their circumstances. So the fourth stage is healing. When they were in a state of surrender, the women started 
um, almost out of desperation for, for a lot of them to, to do what it took to move toward healing. And the first step that it took for a lot of them was to ask for help. If one therapist wasn't helpful or one religious leader wasn't helpful, they'd move on to another one instead of just shutting down. And they would really begin to use their agency fully for the first time during this stage. They, most of them didn't have the language to speak about pornography or sexuality still, and a lot of them in shame. So they turned to things like books, podcasts, websites um, that talked about pornography addiction or compulsive pornography use or betrayal trauma. And they started to gain the language skills, but then they could reach out and look for therapists for 12-step programs. And especially, they said, women's faith-based support groups were the most helpful. Uh, the more quickly women broke their silence and gained access to clinical support and reduced their shame, the less time they spend in those crisis and aftermath stages. They started receiving, uh, they reported receiving support from God through little miracles, through help from other people that showed up in their lives, um, through just personal interactions with God. And they uh, started having these feelings of compassion um, for, for people that they interacted with, um, for the, especially for those who um, shared their stories and gave them hope of where to look. And likewise, when um, religious leaders were treating them with compassion and, you know, saying, I, I know I see you. I know this is hard. We're not only going to take care of your husband, but we are going to get you the resources that you need. Then that also helped with their spiritual healing and help them get the support they needed. They started being able to set intentional boundaries and they learned about pornography, compulsion, and addiction from a scientific perspective. They learned about betrayal they learned about sex and they learned about God in new ways. These started opening in their minds just um, a new way of seeing, new paradigm, new way of seeing things. And one of the biggest ways they were able to see things in a new way, um, they'd always been conditioned to care for everyone else first, but they finally felt like they could, uh, they saw the importance of caring for themselves. And some women, uh, this might have been like with mindfulness or meditation or massage uh, for a, a significant number of them. Um, different forms of art helped them with their healing and with their self-care. Um, getting into poetry, music, dance, other artistic forms uh, that art seemed to bring comfort and understanding and help them cope in really positive ways. Um, and they started to see the reality through new, more educated and experienced lenses. Some of them were able to see in this stage um, things that had been unjust about their experience, perhaps some legal injustices, perhaps um, some uh, religious rhetoric that had contributed to their marginalization and to the marginalization of many women. Uh, that then led them to take responsibility for their husband's behaviors. So their self-awareness really began to expand. One other really interesting thing they talked about was they could see their own character flaws. They could see perhaps how 
things that they had done um, were also not <laughs> uh, not good, and they saw things that they could work on with them with the mom so with their own selves. You know, some of them even saying, oh, "I can see how early in the marriage when he." mentioned something about pornography i totally went off the rails and then he never felt like he could talk about it again because he's afraid i was going to divorce him and so then it went underground where it just exploded so everyone had a different way of that but several of them did mention they could see in themselves their own weaknesses and then that takes us to the last stage which is transformed with this new reco reconstructed cognitive sense of self, the women started to implement this new paradigm. And this allowed them to change some previously held beliefs, behaviors, and even their faith. She realized that to keep a growth perspective, she needed to address her own blind spots and intentionally made choices to fully reclaim her own power and agency. <clears throat> um, as women became more solid in their own identities, they could be more genuine and vulnerable in their relationships. And several, so in the study, I would say one third divorced, probably maybe a little bit more than that, maybe 40%. And I would say of the 60% who stayed, stayed married, 30% of them still had not great marriages but they stayed within the marriage usually for economic reasons. And the other third had whole new marriages. Mm. Like they completely reconstructed their marriage relationships and uh, said it was far better than it ever, ever would have been, ever had been. You know, in the beginning, they kept wanting to go back to what they had early in the marriage. And they're like, I don't want to go back. My husband, every once in a while, wants to go dig up that old marriage. And I tell him, that's dead. That marriage is dead. We have a new marriage now. So those new marriages, those new relationships with friends, with religious leaders, um, those were well-defined as far as boundaries go. Um, and... Uh, still allowing them to, to keep that power and agency. They spoke about healthy sexuality. They'd never understood what healthy sexuality was before and how closely intertwined it can be with spirituality. And most women in my study stayed in their religion, but reconstructed it to more simple belief system. Religion, instead of being central to their lives, God became central to their lives. Jesus Christ for most of them. And religion became a scaffolding that led them and supported them in their relationship with God. So that religious reframing allowed them to develop a deep personal relationship or attachment with God, who they found to be more trustworthy than their husband. A few of these women, three of them, um, talked about longing for a female deity that was given equal weight to a female, to a male God and that elevated women to an equal status with men. Uh, that was fascinating. That was one of my, some aha moments listening to Jewish women talk about that. Uh, and in a small number of women, they no longer felt that they could worship in the same way in the same location with the same leaders in the same community. And so they, 
some explored different faith traditions, went in and out of trying different things, um, and some left organized religion altogether, but still considered themselves to be spiritual. They started taking ownership for their preferences, their behaviors. They started creating deep relationships and found meaning to their experience of uh, betrayal by becoming a voice for others on the same path. They started sharing their stories in schools, on podcasts like yours, in churches, in books, in seminars. A lot of them decided to go on to become a coach or a therapist. The more women spoke out about their own experiences in support of women and against pornography, the more powerful their once their voices became. Their new awareness of their own selves, of God, and their relationships um, that they had gained awakened them to a complete sense of themselves, to a level of intimacy that encompassed everyone that they interacted with. Now, the the length of time the women in my study, the, the most recent one had had her discovery nine months before. The longest were a couple of decades. So there's a huge variety of time. But even the woman that had discovered it nine months earlier, she still was able to dip her toe into some of these areas of transformation. But for the most part, those who had... Um, had a discovery, you know, at least a couple of years ago, we're, we're moving towards these later um, transformational stages. So that's, that's the five stages and that's the model. Um, really powerful stuff. I would guess a lot of listeners are going to go back and re-listen to um, lots of wonderful principles of understanding. I've got some comments, but you also have another section, important takeaways. Why don't we go through important takeaways? Because I want to make sure that everything you've got to share with our listeners, um, they hear. So go to that section, Dr. Hastings. All right. So for me, the biggest takeaway is this model is God's plan for our salvation and happiness. This is the plan that we have a creation, creation of relationships, that we have falls within our relationships, and that Jesus Christ's atonement then leads us out of the dark fall into healing and transformation. That was the biggest takeaway for me. Uh, Some other important but less important, um, well, let me go back to that one and expand upon that just slightly. I would say that Jesus Christ loves and loves all of his daughters. He loves all of Heavenly Father, well, let me frame it this way, God. God loves all of his children, his sons and his daughters. His plan for our salvation, for our happiness is not um, just for one religion. (laughs) This model that I saw, this 
all these women are going through this model. And I was more aware than I ever have been how much he loves all of his children, especially his daughters. Um, okay, so to, to also an important point, but less um, wondrous, perhaps, is that secrecy about pornography use is highly destructive. We've got to learn to communicate about it. It's when it's kept in secret that it grows in darkness and becomes problematic. Now, I will say probably the, <clears throat> the age of um, individuals that you had in your singles ward are much better at talking about things like this than people in generations older, you know, from their 30s to their 70s. Uh, it's definitely because they've been raised with smartphones where pornography has really exploded uh, and become much more accepted. Um, like Dr. Willoughby was saying, 80 to 90% of men and a high percentage of women also are, are seeing and using pornography. It's vital to talk about it. And if, if men or women, either one, are saying, this is a problem for me, I don't want it, but it's a problem for me. And they're telling a loved one that, and the loved one responds with shame, then it will most likely become secretive. So those, um, I, those are just important things that we need to develop the language for. Uh, I think your podcast is helping for sure. Uh, give people words and terms and understanding of it. Um, Another thing that I found in my study was while women were hurt and they were betrayed, they felt betrayed, what seemed, what several of them said hurt even worse was the complete disappearance of intimacy. And I feel like men need to learn about intimacy, which is why my husband and I are writing a book on that. Uh, I sometimes illustrate it this way for, for some individuals or couples that I work with. And that is, imagine yourself walking down a path with your spouse. And I, as the woman, I'm looking over to the left. I'm noticing a beautiful flower garden and beautiful green meadow, maybe mountains. And I'm just filled with wonder over this. And my husband is looking off to the right and he's seeing a beautiful lake and a shore and some birds and things. And, and we're walking the same path, but if we're not saying, Hey honey, look over here, look at what I'm seeing. Look at my perspective over here, my view over here. And the husband's saying, yeah, look over here. And we're touching hands and we're we're connecting and we're, you know, sharing this experience with each other, it's much more rich than if all we ever see is our own perspective. And we're both walking down this path and we're missing so much of life because we, we can't figure out how to be intimate. So that's one of the big points is uh, that was harder for women than, than anything perhaps. Um, and then, well, that, and let me, also say honesty. Honesty was probably probably would have trumped the um, the intimacy. So if their husbands had just been honest with them, true. Some of them then later said, but I didn't know how to react in a proper 
proper way. I can see why he might not have been honest about it. So those are issues that we need to bring up within marriages. Um, Another thing I felt that came out of there that was really important is that couples need to have access to learning about healthy sexuality within a religious framework, especially one that focuses on sexual agency, consent, gender equality, and healthy relationships. So uh, it's possible but very difficult to have a healthy sexual relationship if you don't have a healthy marriage relationship. It's really important for women to understand that they have sexual agency and power that they're leaving sitting on the table a lot of for a lot of women and they're not stepping into that um that uh and there are a couple of people out there within the church that are starting to help focus uh the language and and the ideas on uh healthy sexuality i really appreciate that i love that uh and Lastly, maybe I I could probably talk about a lot of other things, but these are some of the top ones that come to my mind right now is that women are socialized to trust and to submit. And that makes women vulnerable to deception and abuse. We want to be able to trust. And I would submit to a man that is honorable, but men aren't perfect. They're mortal, right? God, God, it's completely trustworthy. Uh, so you don't, to, to completely give away your agency is um, counterproductive to, and I'm not saying don't trust and don't serve and don't, um, because many men are trustworthy. Many men, or maybe I should say some men are trustworthy. Some men are, uh, um, but uh, if there's a way that we can just teach women to step into their own agency a little bit more and um, build the ability to, to speak up, they can be submissive in some ways, but don't completely fold themselves into um, their spouse because research shows self-differentiation creates the best relationships. Self-differentiation means I know who I am. I know what my preferences are. I know what my desires are. I know what my opinions are on things. I know who my husband is and his ideas, desires, his, some of them might be different than mine. I allow him the agency to be who he is. And I have the agency to be who I am. I allow him the flexibility to be different than me. At some point, I may change some of my opinions to align more closely with his, or he, he may change some of his to align more closely with me. But as God doesn't want us to be the same, he, want, he made us unique and he wants us to be who we are. And then as we're autonomous, we can create more intimacy when we can come together, like the analogy I gave of being on that path. Look how I see things. Look how wonderful this is. And you have strengths and I have strengths. And we're going to bring those together and look how much more powerful our relationship is when we have both ideas, when we have both strengths. Um, so those are just some thoughts that I thought were important takeaways. Oh, a couple others. Um, Women need women to heal. And this was a big one. 
women uh, did far better with female religious leaders who could understand where they were coming from and add compassion in and nurturing in a deeper way. They did far better with, uh, like I said, women's support groups and uh, those few that I talked about who felt like they needed a female deity to a heavenly mother, uh, um, a feminine divine to help them heal. Um, and then my last, this is my favorite, and I won't talk about it too long because I know you do have a few questions, but Jesus Christ really emerged in this study because the majority of the, the um, participants were Christian. And they um, bore such powerful, powerful, powerful testimonies of Jesus Christ. Several of them who had felt suicidal, more than 50% mentioned that without me asking any questions, uh, felt the presence of Jesus Christ or something from the other, another realm uh, that told them things like, it's not time yet, or I'm here with you, or I'm laying by you, I'm protecting you. Um, so there were a few takeaways for me about their how Jesus Christ interacted as a form of relief for them throughout this uh, this phenomenon, this crucible. I'll call it a crucible. First is that they explain that Jesus Christ is aware of our heavy burdens, and he comes quickly. And that didn't mean that he came quickly to relieve, to take away the trial, but it meant that he was aware of them and there were little small things that happened that they'd say, I know God was there. Now for, for some of them, they were going through this faith crisis for a while and it took longer than that. But in hindsight, they could see, Oh, he was there in this and I missed it. So again, he's aware of our heavy burdens and he comes quickly. The second thing is that he provides relief through others. Uh, that was in the form of religious leaders, friends, family members who, who didn't say hurtful things or blame it on them, but just were there for them, who told them that they were going to stick by them and be with them uh, through um, support groups as well. Uh, the third thing is that Jesus Christ provides relief when we trust him. And I really saw that, especially when they came to that hit rock bottom point, when they started surrendering to him and saying, I cannot carry this anymore. I'm laying my burden at your feet. And and that's when they gave complete trust to him. And the last thing that I, I believe that Jesus Christ did to, to be a relief for the women is helped helped them and helped me and helped all of us change in a permanent way. And that brings relief on a much um, long lasting, eternal, even uh, paradigm that he, he knows where we were. He doesn't want to leave us there. He wants to walk with us, be with us and move with us until we become transformed through him. 
So on those on those last four points, I did. That's what I spoke about in our Stake Relief Society um, conference, and and would be willing to share the the video or the transcript, either one of of that talk. This is sacred space, Doctor Hastings. Um, we will link to your Stake Women's talk in the show notes. This is where I hope I can ask questions that listeners have in their mind right now. Okay. Um, here's a question for you. I'm. This is a woman um, who recognizes something isn't right in her marriage. There's no drip, drip, though. There's no discovery. Um, there's no evidence. It's just a hunch that something isn't yeah. right. And she is sort of doesn't know what to do. Um, should yeah. I confront my spouse and on pornography use or being unfaithful or financial manipulation? And the downside of that may be worse than just um, staying in this marriage, knowing something's not right. I've got kids at home. He's got a temple recommend. I've got a temple recommend. Yeah. I don't know what to do here. Um, the downside yeah. might be worse and I'm worried about being gaslit and I'll put back on me and there's no evidence yeah. here. There's no discovery. And so I'm just feeling my gut. Something isn't right. Talk to that woman. So that's, that's really interesting. And my, my research didn't touch on that, but I uh, have worked with women in that circumstance. And my feeling is you have two choices. You can take that risk and try, you know, push, 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 try to blow it open. You can pray, Heavenly Father, if this is going on, lead me to proof of this. I, I did have one uh, woman that I interviewed that for a decade she had known something was going on and she just kept praying, Heavenly Father, help me to see truth. Uh, I have another person that I've worked with that for 20 years, she's suspected something. And, and what it finally, she's got a couple of choices. She keeps pushing on that. Is that really ultimately going to help her or can she still move to those healing and transformation stages, even if she doesn't know? My sense is she can still move to those other transformation stage, stages. She can still, you know, make her self-care a priority. She can still adopt healthy boundaries. She can still work on having authentic relationships, trying to reconnect in intimate ways with her husband if there isn't that healthy connection going on. Um, she's probably going to have to change a lot of her things that she's telling herself because she may for as long as she suspected it, I've told herself that she's not good enough and that it's her fault. Uh, so there's still some of those same patterns, but she can, and it might take cognitive behavioral therapy uh, is, um, I think, really helpful in changing some of those thoughts. And if you would like, I'd be willing to share um, a worksheet that I share in my BYU-Idaho class on um, how to work through what some of our thoughts are that cause us distress and then may in turn impact how we treat our husband because 
or how we treat ourselves. And, and so coming, finding more true statements than the statements we're telling ourselves may be able to allow us to still have a positive relationship with that person, regardless of, you know, whether they're being willing to talk about it or not. Is that something we could put in the show notes? Yeah, I think so. Um, that was a home run answer. I love um, teaching <laughs> about you. prayer and that um, our heavenly parents love uh, their daughters and praying to yeah. Heavenly Father and getting answers. I love also you pivoted in a way I didn't think of, but is really very, very helpful that these stages of healing and transformation and aftermath can occur without the disclosure and the drip drip. Um, it's sort of back to you can control what you can control. And there may be some things you're not able to control, like your husband's disclosure. And, right. But the things you're telling yourself, the shame, it's your fault and going to therapy and sort of that's the reality of my marriage. I want to stay in it. and um, But I'm going to focus on the things that I can control um, right. and realize this isn't my fault. And that was really and, very helpful. And, and tell myself things that are true, things that I do know, what I do know. He's, he, is he a good father? Is he, do I, you know, is he a good provider for our family? If he's not, or if he's abusive, or if he's abusive to the woman, she probably needs to think yeah. about the safety of that relationship. But there are things you can do to, to create boundaries and to, um, to grow and to progress and to be honest with our thoughts. We tell ourselves a lot of things that aren't true. So talk to men that might be listening that um, are been viewing pornography and know this would break their wife's heart and they know that it's that it's wrong and they know it's having a negative impact on their marriage in many ways that you've described. They just worry that the downside of breaking their wife's heart <laughs> um, and disclosing this part about them will ruin their marriage and cause more pain than just never talking about it. Talk to those men. They might be right. It, it probably will break their wife's heart. Uh, it could possibly lead to dissolution of the marriage. That, those are all possibilities. But Secrecy and dishonesty don't sit well with God in my estimation. And as you see from this model, even if her heart is broken, we have resources now. I have a, a sheet of resources for both women and, and men that I've put together for our stake um, and, and for some others. There, there are resources out there. So you don't... Um, uh, so the crisis doesn't last forever. And, and one of the big, another one of the big takeaways for me from this, uh, and it was so beautifully spoken by one of the LDS women that I interviewed. She said, we used to have a lot of rules in our family. Now we have one. And that one is learn to sit in discomfort for growth. And why are men often using pornography? Because they're uncomfortable with stress at work, with things from their childhood, with boredom. Uh, 
And so it's used as a coping mechanism. Uh, this is the exact same reason that they're not wanting to tell their spouse because they're afraid of discomfort. They're afraid of moving through something that's really uncomfortable that can eventually transform their marriage into something new. I thought you could handle these questions. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I loved, you answered a question. That was a great answer. Um, And I love that it's a pragmatic answer as well as an answer filled with hope. Um, I love that you answered a question, what percent of your um, participants ended in divorce? And that was 40%. But then you um, talked about of the 60% that stayed married, about half of those or 33% of your total recipients um, moved into whole new marriages. Yeah. And that was really, I hope our listeners got that. It didn't move back into their original marriage, um, but they moved into a whole new marriage. And some of our guests were both, were they a husband and wife have talked about their pornography use on the podcast. It's the husband's pornography use. It was discovered. They've kind of talked about moving into whole new marriages for yeah. some of the principles of vulnerability, honesty, communication, discomfort um, have helped them grow in a way, putting pornography use behind them as part of that. And so that I love the hope in that and that that could be the yeah. reality of, of listeners that are on this road or early on this road. You know, one of the biggest, um, I think probably the biggest difference between those who were were able to create new marriages and those who uh, still stayed in poor marriages was the husband's willingness to be vulnerable, to be honest, to work his program. If they needed to be with a certified sex addiction therapist or some other kind of therapist or, or in their, um, the uh, addiction recovery program or, which for a lot, when it's pretty severe, that may need something in addition to that, um, to have a sponsor. If, if the men were willing to work their program, then the marriage more often completely was transformed and, and became really beautiful. But if he continued to deny or to not want to talk about it uh, after the discovery, then it was kind of more like they were roommates. Uh, we talk a lot about shame. You've talked about shame. If I were going to start this podcast again, I might put the word shame in there as this is a podcast to eliminate shame. Um, yeah. I, listeners, I really think Satan's real and wants to destroy us. And I think sin's sort of step one, but I think he only really w- wins with shame. Because and, remember, there's no progression <laughs> when there's shame. There's no growth when there's shame. We We stop ourselves. It's... And I actually wrote that down. That was such a powerful concept. Shame keeps people from growing and progressing. Yeah. Um, but you also use this phrase, you talked about this um, experience perhaps where a husband opened up or was going to kind of open up about pornography use, maybe in the dating phase or early in the marriage phase. And that conversation yeah. just ended. And you use this term, um, he went underground. And so yeah. I, I think that little story there, listeners, is important how we talk about pornography. At a recent state conference in our state, a visiting authority used pretty um, shaming language to talk about pornography use. And I thought 
you know, now that I'm a little more thoughtful in the space of all the, there are probably men in our state viewing pornography. And I thought they went underground to use your words. And that language, everybody knows it's a sin. Um, All the people I've had on the podcast know it's a sin. I want to put it behind them. But I think if we're a local leader, if we're a parent of kids, if we're a spouse and this subject comes up, I think we've got to talk about it in a way that doesn't send people around us underground so that they'll open up. And Yes. So let me, I have a couple of thoughts that come to mind with that. And one is it's really important to develop a family media plan. And this family media plan does not make the woman responsible for the man. Like it doesn't mean she's checking, you know, she is the holder of all the keys and he's like having to mother may I, but if that's what would help him feel comfortable, he can ask her, will you take the internet off my phone and have the password to it? That way, if I need to use it for something, then, and I'm not saying that that needs to be their media plan, but whatever it is that they can decide together that, um, would help him feel safe uh, is is important. It's important to talk about. I mean, I hear about women saying, my husband forbids me from touching his phone. I'm not able to. That's not a healthy media plan to keep from using pornography. Um, So coming together, like we count, we covenant to counsel together and work together in love and righteousness. And so, This means that media is one of those things that we may need to counsel about, that we may need to work on together without me being in charge of you or, you know, being like treating someone like they're a little kid. It's if I have a problem, I'm going to come to say to you and say, can you help support me? I'm feeling triggered or can we can we make a contract that if I do this, then these are some of the boundaries that are going to happen. Or for her, if you do this, this is going to be our our plan. This is what I need to help me feel safe. So just being able to talk through some of those things. Um, and, and I can give you... Uh, I think there's a, there's a uh, Dr. Um, Mark Bird here in the DFW area wrote a, a book called In Tandem that kind of has some helpful things along those lines. So that might be something that you can link in the show notes as well. So that's just helpful. And I just think, you know, this podcast mostly talks about marriages, but there's other spaces that pornography is in. Parents trying to navigate this with this kids, our kids and local leaders with okay. youth and local leaders with adults, I think. To your point earlier, youth are more likely to talk about pornography use um, to their bishop, unmarried youth probably than married adults. And I think a bishop potentially can create a culture by going to Elders Corn Release Society and say, if you want to talk about pornography use, this is how I will respond. I'm willing yeah. to have that conversation with you and yeah. and sort of take the unknown and create a safe person and sort of that's back to your idea of getting it out of the underground. And so it can be a path right. to hope and healing. I, uh, I have a friend who 
was a singles ward bishop, and they renamed the addiction recovery program Shepherding. And after the first two hours of church had a third hour where the whole ward was invited to come. And not everybody went, but the whole ward would go together through the addiction recovery 12 steps. And that, that was powerful for them. I heard of a ward recently that uh, those who have felt safe in talking to their bishop about pornography problems, uh, they have a weekly phone call together where they hold each other accountable and keep each other. And we do that in our family. Our son just came home from his mission and knowing the percentages, 80 to 90 percent, we said, what can we do? to help you, to, to give you a safe place to call us. And he said, I would love if you would just call me every Saturday and just say, how are you doing? Like we talked about his media plan, talked about it together. And so dad gets to call him every Saturday and just say, Hey, just wanted to check in see how your media plan's going. It's a safe place. It's a good way to make it safe to talk about things like that without shame. I, I love that story. And I love that your son came up with the plan. I think, um, I think that's a better parenting principle is to sort of how you framed it, but then let our kiddos come up with how we can help, not sort of how we think we can best help, um, but how they want us to help, especially adult children. So I thought that was true. Especially adult children. And, and be aware that kids are accessing it through not only cell phones and computers, but through gaming And as parents, we have to be more aware of technological advancements, stay on top of that. And as we're talking family media plans, just include some of those things that parents sometimes just turn over to their kids without without any protection, without talking about it, without following up. Um, I love... There's um, I love how you talk about how some of your participants had to reframe um, the religion around God and looked at church as more of the means, the scaffolding, and how I think, because church at times, um, I just think that's a better long-term relationship is to look, church is not an eternal organization. Right. <laughs> it's a right. means It's a means to connect us with God. The covenant path is a means to connect us with God, our heavenly parents in Christ. And mm-hmm. so usually, you know, some people do lose trust in God because they lose trust in men. And I, there were some YSA women that lost trust in men, but Heavenly Mother and a female yeah. deity was something that was very sustainable to them. We did a podcast of a woman who prayed before a date, um, uh, a BYU student that was raped on that date. And, and that's a whole nother story. But, you know, her, she lost trust of men. And I'm not a therapist, but I can connect the dots and sort of go, I get that. Yeah. And that, in her case, went all the way to God. Why didn't God protect me as I actually prayed? Right. But it was her relationship with Heavenly Mother and the female divine that sustained her until she was able to reconstruct. She did the podcast once she was married and was able to reconstruct. She didn't marry a rapist, let me be clear. She married you know, a really fine, outstanding man. But I love that you touched on that in the middle of this, Dr. Hastings. There's so many parts of your that are very helpful <laughs> to just navigating the realities of life, principles that scale to other situations. That's kind of all I've got. I just, I, back to this creating a culture, you know, I've said this before, we're, 
the parents of four sons and I would go back and, you know, and tell my sons, you know, this is the family rule about pornography use, but this is how I respond. If you view pornography, um, I will, so I'll take that unknown out of their mind and I'll role play them. You know, yeah, we agree. It's a sin. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to be viewing it. We get that. So we're all on the same page there. There's no shame. Just talk to, you know, this is how I respond if you open up and then I'll do kind of what you do. This is me wanting to go back listeners to when I had boys at home (laughs) and wanting to do some do-overs just to create a safe environment that I think the greatest parenting we can do is when kids open up to us about the realities of our lives. But if we're always bagging on the neighbors or bagging on another political party or bagging on I'm being negative here. People that are just different than us, it does send a message to our kids that maybe we're not safe for um, them to open up to parents about the realities of their lives. And good parenting happens when they do that. Our finest moments. The reality is that we can we can be loving and we can be kind and we can be accepting and we can still be solid in our testimonies of Jesus Christ and His gospel. Um, I read this quote a lot, listeners, and a couple things. I'll put in all the things we're going to put in the show notes. I'll put there. If, if you're new to this podcast and you've mentioned some of the prior podcasts we've done on pornography, you you can go to listenlearnandlove.org. All our podcasts are organized there. There's a whole section on podcasts about pornography. And we'll, of course, have Dr. Hastings there. But there's maybe 30 or 40 or 50 brave people. And so... Um, if you're looking for more content beyond this podcast and the show notes, you could go there. Um, I also like this concept of a wounded healer. A minister's service will not be percent perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which she or he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led of a desert by someone who's never been there. And so you, Dr. Hastings, are the wounded healer. You, you know, you've got a personal story here that's wounding and you shared some of that. But then you bring all this academic experience and and this research to create the content you're doing. It's not just academic for you. It's, it's real. And then you're able to help so many people and listeners. I think we're all wounded in some ways and some of yeah. us. And I think that wounding allows us to lift the burdens of others authentically because we know the role of the atonement, we know what it feels like. And mortality is wounding the oldest, older I get. And so that's where I love you end with Jesus Christ is relief. And then you went very specifically about the role of Jesus Christ. That's all I have on Dr. Hastings, but I want to send it back to you to see if there's any last thoughts. Oh, it's just been a pleasure to, to visit with you and to be able to share this. My great desire is... I heard a a definition of compassion recently that compassion is taking action to relieve suffering. And that is my desire that my words can in some small way relieve the suffering of some people. When I went through some of this decades ago, uh, I told no one. And I threw it to the bottom of the ocean. And then eventually it came up as a tsunami ended in divorce uh, and 
you know, I think God is bringing it full circle now because when we use our difficult life circumstances to help others heal, it in turn heals us. So I, I love uh, our Savior Jesus Christ and, and our Heavenly Father's plan for our salvation and our progression. And that, again, includes creation, fall atonement. Well said. Thank you, our listeners, for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Heidi Hastings. And um, this is Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <music>